Thank you, Dan and choir and sanctuary ringers and musicians for a majestic worship this morning. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be looking at various verses in chapter 13 and chapter 14. We continue our Samuel series this morning in a sermon entitled Unrestrained. Psst, we're down here. We want to come up. Hey, hey, can we come up? Jonathan asked. The king's son, the crown prince, with no one with him but his armor bearer, shouting upward to the enemies of God, the Philistines, those who spent their time killing Israelites. What has come over him? What must he be thinking? Look at chapter 13 and verse 9. Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. Verse 22 of chapter 13. So it came about on that day of battle that neither the sword nor the spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son, Jonathan. Not only are they outnumbered two to thousands, tens of thousands, not only are they outnumbered, they don't have the weaponry of the Philistines. All the blacksmiths have been outlawed amongst the land of Israel by the Philistines. No one had the weaponry. You've heard it said that you don't want to show up to a gunfight with a knife. That's true. That's good advice. But you also don't want to show up to a knife fight with fists. And that's about all that they had. The Philistines were well equipped with the weaponry of war. The Israelites had no blacksmiths and thus very little weapons. They were ill-prepared to go against the big time, the big boys. And so Israel's army is actually hiding here and there in the cliffs, in the pits, in the caves, using only a few farmer's tools that they can find. To make matters worse, King Saul, Jonathan's father, has just been taken to the woodshed and rebuked by the prophet Samuel because he did not wait until Samuel arrived for the sacrifice. Things are not good. Look at verse 11. King Saul says, I saw that the people were scattering from me. Or in 13:12, I know the Philistines will come down against me. The man is losing his army. In fact, he's losing his unarmed army, going against the Philistines' machine of war. Look at 13:5 and 6. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. Skip down. When the men of Israel saw they were in the strait, the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and pits. And all the people, verse 7, followed the king trembling. The army is hiding. And those who stayed, well, the rest had already run. Those who stayed didn't even have good weapons with which to do battle. Now, maybe you've gotten the wrong picture of Jonathan. 
Sometimes we imagine that Jonathan is timid and lacks courage, and therefore Yahweh skips over Jonathan, the crown prince, to make David the next king. I, I suppose you know as we go through this narrative that it isn't Jonathan, the logical one to become king, but rather it is David who takes his place. But what the writer is doing here is making us see that Jonathan has everything that Jonathan needs to actually be the next king. He is a man of courage. He is a believing warrior. He is a man of integrity. He is well-liked by the people. In fact, if you'd never read this story before, and as you're reading through, and Saul has been rebuked by Samuel, you imagine as a reader that Jonathan must be stepping forward to be the next king. Don't get the wrong idea about Jonathan. He is a believing warrior of courage. In fact, in the story that unfolds before our eyes, Jonathan shows himself to be wiser than his father Saul, braver than his father Saul, and more adored by the people than his daddy. Of all the suggestions that you hope to ever receive if you're the one carrying the armor for the crown prince, the suggestion you don't want to hear is, hey, let's go over just to us and let's take on the Philistine army. Come on, let's go. Look at 14.1. Look at now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come, let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the yonder side. But he did not tell his father. Don't get any ideas, kids, but sometimes it's easier to get forgiveness than permission with your parents. So, of course, he did not tell his daddy. His father would have stopped his foolish act of trying to do war, two, against an army. There's three things I want you to see this morning in this passage about Jonathan the brave warrior. First of all, God's reign is unrestrained. God's reign is unrestrained. There's a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. We have two cliffs here, and Jonathan and his armor bearer are looking at the bottom, looking straight up to the Philistine side. Hey, hey, can we come up? We want to come up and talk. Jonathan here is pictured as the believing warrior. Look at verse 6. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by the many or by the few. The Lord is not restrained to save by the many or by the few. Do you understand what Jonathan is saying? He is saying that he and his sole helper, his armor bearer, are going to fight the whole Philistine armor. What gives Jonathan the ludicrous idea that he and his armor bearer will be able to take on the whole Philistine army so well equipped, so ready to do war? The difference for Jonathan in his mind and his heart is the Lord. The Lord can win with the thousands or the Lord can win with the two. The reign of God is unrestrained. Look at verse 7. His armor bearer is so faithful. I'm ready to go with you, Jonathan. We'll do whatever you want to do. 
Well, I have a plan, he says in verse 8. We'll shout up, hey, can we come up to you? And if they say, come on up, we'll know the Lord has delivered them into our hands, and we will go to war, and we will win. But if they shout down, no, no, don't come up, we're coming down to you, then that will be a sign that, well, God is not ready to do war against the Philistines with just the two of us, and we will not go to war. Now, you, if you're the armor bearer of all the words you want to hear, the last thing you want to hear is, hey, y'all, come on up. And so, yes, hey, 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 can we come up? You know, sometimes before they do battle, armies will talk and soldiers will converse. It's a momentary truce. And so he sends a word, hey, hey, can we come up? And they say, verse 12, come on up. We are wanting to talk to you. Verse 11, they make a snide remark. Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes. They've been so scaredy cat. They've been hiding, they're saying. And Jonathan climbs up, hands and feet all the way up with his sword attached to his back, his armor bare below, carrying some more armor and his own armor. And when he gets to the top, even before his armor bearer joins him, he begins swinging the sword and he begins to thrust inside the Philistines. And 20 of Philistia are killed all of a sudden. And the Philistines don't know that there isn't a whole army coming over. And they, they quake in fear. There's a cloud of commotion. And they say, who's missing? Saul sees a cloud of commotion. The army of Israel notices there's war going over there. We didn't send anybody to do the war. Who's missing? And they count off to see who's not there. I remember when I was just a kid and our church would take a bus to Six Flags over Georgia, that before we got off the bus and went wild in Six Flags, we had to count off. Everybody had a number. And so when you get finished and everybody gets back on the bus, you find out who's stuck in the haunted house or who you need to go and retrieve. And so just like kids coming back from Six Flags, they are counting off who is missing, missing, and it's the crown prince. It's Jonathan. It's Jonathan's armor bearer. They are gone. The battle has officially begun now. They bring the ark with them. Saul leads the troops in the battle. A battle initiated by Jonathan. The battle gains momentum. Then all the cowards who have been cowering in the caves come out for war. They begin to chase the Philistines. And God saves by the few. This isn't the first time that God is saved by the few, is it? Think back to Judges 7 with Gideon, the judge against the Midianites. They're about to do war, God's people against the Midianites, and they have 32,000 soldiers ready to fight. And God says, I don't like that number. It's too big. If you win with that number, you'll think you did it. Let's don't, let's don't go to war with 32,000 soldiers. This is Judges 7. Let everybody who doesn't want to go to war go home. Well, 22,000 say, you know, I've got other things to do today. Thank you, Judge. I think I'll go back to be with the wife and the kids. 22,000 go home. Now there's 10,000 soldiers. And God says, that's still way too many. If you win with 10,000, you'll think that you've done it. Gideon, take them down to drink some water. And those who kneel to drink, send them home. And those who 
lap like a dog, let them go to war, and there are only 300 who go to war. Not 32,000, not 10,000, but 300. Remember, they put the pitchers over their torches. They crack them. They blast the trumpets. There's confusion in the Midianite camp. And the Israelites win. God saves by the few. It's not the only time again yet, is it? Samson's hiding in a cave. Here comes the Philistines. They tie ropes around his wrist, and all of a sudden they break as if they're a spider's thread, and he picks up a, a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And the writer tells us with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, Samson slays a thousand men. God is unrestrained. He can do it by the many. He can do it with the one. Or think in the New Testament, 5,000 men, their families have come to hear our Lord teach. It's lunchtime. There's nowhere close to eat. There's no market nearby in the wilderness. And here comes a lad. Find a lad with five loaves and two salt fish. But what's so little with so many? Jesus prays and breaks the bread, and they feed the 5,000 men and their families with five loaves and two fish. God's reign is unrestrained. Jonathan tells us that God can save by the many, but God can also save by the few. God's reign is unrestrained. There's a second thing I want you to see in this text. Beware what you declare. Beware what you declare. Turn over to chapter 14 now and in verse 24. Things are going well in the war. King Saul is so excited, having been rebuked by God's prophet Samuel, He's so excited that now he's actually beating the Philistines, and he says, don't you stop and eat. Look at verse 24. Cursed be the man who eats before the evening until I have avenged myself against my enemies. Don't stop. Don't eat. Keep slaughtering the Philistines. That's the command from, from Saul. In fact, he says, cursed be the man who takes a break to eat. Jonathan wasn't there when his father made the oath. Beware what you declare. He's fighting against the Philistines. He's running in the woods, and he takes his staff. There's plenteous honey. He takes his staff. He dips it in the honey. He dips it to his tongue, and the other warriors shout, No, 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 it's too late. Your father said, Cursed be the one who eats before evening, and all the Philistines are dead. Jonathan says, that's not a good thing. My father has troubled the land. You look at verse 29. My father has troubled the land. It's an old theory, but it's a good theory. The man who never stops and breaks to sharpen his axe will actually chop less wood. Sometimes we have to stop and sharpen our axe. In this case, the warriors needed to stop and break and eat to kill more Philistines. As it is they are so hungry that when finally they they do have time to eat they actually attack the animals 
that have been claimed. They, they began to eat them blood and all, and they're going to be guilty against a solemn violation of blood. And Saul quickly builds an altar and drains the blood. They are famished. They are too weak to go to war because of the unwise words of the king. It's time to go to war again, verse 36. So Saul goes and asks the priests, should we go to war? But God is silent. God doesn't say, yes, go, I'll give the Philistines into your hands again. God says nothing. It trouble, troubles Saul, and Saul knows someone has broken the, earth, the, the curse, the oath. Even though it wasn't a wise oath, the oath had been made, and once spoken, it was in place. It was the oath of God's king that cursed be the one who eats before evening and all the Philistines are killed. And so Saul knows that something is amiss and someone has broken the curse and he makes a big proclamation. I don't even care if it's Jonathan, my son, he will die. Be careful what you say. Someone has broken my oath. Someone is under a curse. God is silent. I don't care. Even if it's Jonathan, he will die. So the rest of the army lines up. Saul and Jonathan line up. They cast lots. They draw straws. It falls on Saul and Jonathan. The soldiers, the rest of the soldiers are innocent. And then they cast lots between Saul and Jonathan. And the lot falls to Jonathan. And Saul looks to his son and says, What did you do? I didn't know. I was hungry. I ate the honey. Notice he says in verse 43, Indeed, I tasted a little honey. His eyes were brightened, the text tells us. He did get strength from the honey. Verse 44, And Saul said, May God do this to me and to more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Can you imagine now the king Saul? He's in a rock in a hard place. He's declared, I don't even care if it's Jonathan. If the lot falls to him, he will die. And then it does. The people notice the end of the story. They rescued Jonathan. You're not going to lay a hand on Jonathan. God has used your son. He has delivered us from the Philistines. You shall not touch him. Look at verse 45. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far be it, as the Lord lives there, shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. And the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Beware what you declare. There's the third thing I want you to see. A hand-picked priest is no priest at all. A hand-picked priest is no priest at all. Look, look at chapter 14 and, and verse 3. Now, we don't usually enjoy reading the names, do we? You didn't get to this passage and say, man, I'd love to read verse 3. You notice I spared Sarah from having to read these names. <laughs> and Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. 
we just run right past the names. But sometimes everything is in the name. Going through 1 Samuel, as we have, you should have said, oh, something's not good in verse 3. This is the wrong set of names. You remember way back in chapter 3 and chapter 4 when God first talks to little boy Samuel, the message of God is, I have rejected Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, from being my household of priests. You remember that? And God speaks to Samuel the night, and he has to tell Eli. Eli keeps saying, what did God say? And remember the mantle passed, so to speak, that now Eli is asking Samuel, what did God say? When before, Samuel had to ask Eli what God said. You remember God said, this will be a sign that I've rejected your house, that on the same day both of your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will die? You remember that? You remember they go to war, they take the Ark of the Covenant to war, Trying to use God in a box is a good luck charm. You remember that they're both Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, die. And Eli's an old man. He's sitting in a chair, leaning back on the side of the road. And the messenger comes and runs and says, I've got bad news. Both of your boys are dead. And the ark has been captured. Remember, Eli falls backwards and dies on the information. His boys are dead and the ark has been captured. And then you remember that Phineas's wife, who's expecting a child, gives birth to a son, and they name him what? Ichabod. The glory has departed. Well, now look at these names in verse 3. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. Ichabod is the glory has left. That's the wrong line. Samuel is the new priestly line, not Eli or Eli's family, the family of Ichabod. And notice, he's wearing, Ahijah is wearing the ephod, which is how you know what God is saying. You draw out what God is saying, the yes or the no stone, the Urim or the Thummim, that Ahijah is now wearing the priestly garment. Here's what happened. When Samuel rebuked Saul, the king, and did not tell him what he wanted to hear, Saul went and got a new priest who would tell him what he wanted to hear. He went back to the old house of Eli and got one of his descendants to wear the priestly garment and now to speak whether or not they should go to war. A hand-picked priest, like one from Ichabod's line, Ahijah, is no priest at all. What about you? What about me? When God's Word does not say what we want God's Word to say, do we look for another authority? Do we look and search for a voice that will tell us what we want to hear? That's what Saul did. Samuel won't tell me what I want to hear. Get rid of Samuel. Bring in the old family again, the one rejected by God. There's a story of a man who worked in the factory as a timekeeper. It was his job every day to blow the whistle at 4 o'clock when the shift was over. He took his job seriously. He had an old, poorly functioning watch, so every day on the way up the hill to the factory, he stopped by the clockmaker's shop and went to the window, and he saw the clockmaker's clock, and he set his watch every day to that clock. So when he ascended the hill at 4 o'clock, he would blow the whistle at just the right time. 
The clockmaker noticed that this guy was stopping by the window every day on his way up to the factory. He came out and said, hey, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm the timekeeper at the factory. I blow the whistle at 4 o'clock every day, but my watch isn't very good, so I synchronize it every day with this clock you have in your window. Oh, my, said the clockmaker, embarrassed. That clock's not a very good clock. It doesn't keep time very well. And so every day at 4 o'clock, when I hear the whistle at the top of the hill, I synchronize this clock <laughs> to that whistle. When men advise men, there is no absolute authority. A hand-picked priest is no priest at all. What does God say through Samuel the real prophet of God. God is not restrained by the many or the few. Don't you love Jonathan? Come on, we'll whip the whole army. You had faith like that one day. Where is it? God is not restrained by the many or by the few. And secondly, always beware of what you declare. Measure your words carefully before you speak them. And thirdly, never seek an accommodating authority by which to make your decisions, for an acquiescing authority is no real word at all. Let us pray. God, we're here today and we hear your word. What a majestic story of a brave warrior who could be king. A man of great courage and great faith, a father who's foolish, speaking too many words without measuring those words, and one, when he does not like what he hears, seeks a new compromised voice. God, may we learn from these words. May we hear them and heed them. In the name of Jesus, we pray.